0: The sexual disordering of the human race is a judgment of God for exchanging him for a creature. What's the relationship between God's judgment and homosexuality? That's the question John Piper answers from Romans 1:24 to 28 in this episode of Light and Truth. This sermon was originally preached at Bethlehem Baptist Church on October 11, 1998. In our exposition of the book of Romans, now we have come to this astonishingly relevant section in chapter 1, verses 24, and I'll probably go on through 28, even though I didn't announce that I would go that far, where Paul touches on the reality of homosexuality. Now, this is relevant, I say, for a lot of reasons. Let me mention some of them. Yesterday, there was a conference called Here I Stand to address the issue of homosexual and homosexually active clergy in the ELCA that was reported in the Star Tribune. As you all saw, whether in St. Paul or in Minneapolis, the story of the hate crime committed against the University of Wyoming student who was lashed to a fence and beaten and not expected to live. Perhaps you also read about the Lambeth Conference in England back in August with 641 Anglican bishops from around the world who came together and voted remarkably, overwhelmingly, that... Homosexual practice is incompatible with Scripture. Perhaps you saw in USA Today or New York Times or Washington Post, in late summer, full-page ads picturing 850 former homosexuals who had gathered that summer, last summer, at Exodus International for a conference to celebrate the power of Christ, to triumph over homosexuality. Here in Minnesota, uh, with the help of some of you, I am kept apprised of various legal cases involving the custody of children in the homes of homosexual couples and the disputes that can arise over foster care and adoption in these matters. Or to bring it right home to our church, I'm aware in our own fellowship of people who are homosexually oriented. And I'm aware of a wider group of families that are touched by this, sons and daughters, parents, uncles and aunts and close friends. In other words, this is not a subject that you have to work hard to find relevance for. And Paul would not have been surprised by these things. The Apostle Paul, writing 2,000 years ago, was not and would not be taken off guard by any of this, if I understand him correctly. Now, what is unusual about our day, one of the things that's unusual, there are many, is the defense of the legitimacy of homosexual relations and activity biblically in other words groups that attempt to show from the scriptures that it is legitimate to have a long-term faithful one-on-one homosexual relationship the most common example of this kind of of uh, thinking claims that the denunciations, apparent denunciations, of homosexuality in the New Testament are not references to committed, long-term, faithful homosexual relations, but are condemnations of promiscuity and pederasty. Let me use the words here of one scholar Who's not living anymore, and I won't mention his name, just not to besmirch his memory any more than it already is. What the New Testament is against is something significantly different from a homosexual orientation, which some people seem to have from their earliest days. In other words, the New Testament is not talking about what we have come to speak of as sexual inversion Rather, it is concerned with sexual perversion. Inversion referring to being homosexual by birth or by nature. And so the argument is, yes, the New Testament says things about homosexual behavior, but when it indicts it, it is indicting the promiscuity or the abuse of young people rather than committed, long-term homosexual relationships. Now, with regard to our own text right here in chapter 1, especially verses 26 and 27, the argument gets more precise. And the argument here is that the unnaturalness that's being condemned here is when people who are naturally heterosexual do homosexual acts. Because that's unnatural. It's not unnatural for a homosexual to do homosexual acts. It's unnatural for a heterosexual to do homosexual acts. And that's what the text is condemning. Let's read it so you can see if you agree. Just read verses. the last part of verse 26. Their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts. So the argument goes that what's being indicted here is the unnaturalness of those who are by nature heterosexual, leaving that to do homosexual activity, and by implication, I assume, the reverse would also be true. Those who are homosexual by nature would be unnatural to leave that and engage in heterosexual activity. Now, there are major problems with that interpretation. And I'll mention three. And as I move toward the third one, I move there because that one opens the whole text to us. And I will try this morning to to give a faithful exposition of this whole text, not just a piece of it. Here's the first problem. In verse 27, it says, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Now, if these were men who were by nature heterosexual, what's this burning? for another man. Heterosexuals don't burn for the same sex. This is a very strong term, burning. It's used only here in the New Testament. It's not just the word burn, it's got an intensifying particle on the front of it. And so here is a major stumbling block for saying that what we have here is heterosexuals who, for some strange reason, would engage unnaturally in homosexual activity. Paul's mind, these people are burning for the other sex, which I think, almost by definition, is what it means to be a homosexual by nature. Not heterosexual. Of course, there is such a thing as a bisexual. However, if, if you contemplate the possibility that that's what Paul has in mind, the, the argument won't work either. Because by implication, though I haven't read this argument, I've only read the other one, a bisexual would by nature naturally engage in sex with either a man or a woman and therefore shouldn't be indicted for either because you're only indicted according to this argument for going against your nature and if your nature is homosexual do homosexual acts if it's heterosexual do heterosexual acts and I presume then by implication if you're bisexual do either so the first problem I have with this argument and this interpretation is that the language of burning for your own sex doesn't seem to fit being a heterosexual and crossing over promiscuously to do homosexual acts. Here's the second problem. In verse 27, at the end of the verse, it says, Their women exchanged the natural affection for that which is unnatural. Or is that verse 26? The women exchanged their natural affection for. For that which is unnatural. Now, the little phrase, that which is unnatural, in the Greek, is a stock phrase in Greek ethical literature for homosexual behavior per se. Not homosexual promiscuity by heterosexuals. Now, I read that long time ago, but yesterday I tracked down Josephus, I tracked down Philo, I tracked down Plutarch, and I looked up texts to see the use of parafusine and whether this claim was so. And it is so. This is a standard usage in the Greek world that when something is done, parafusis, against nature, It was what they used to describe homosexuality per se. Therefore, all the evidence linguistically is that when Paul uses the phrase to describe what women or men are doing, he's not talking about the extraordinary promiscuous activity of a heterosexual going against that nature to do a homosexual thing. But homosexuals per se are parafusis, namely against nature. So Paul simply picks up the common phrase that's used for homosexuality per se in the whole Greek ethical literature and uses it, and that stands in the way of this interpretation. Now, the third argument against such an interpretation is the big one. And it involves us in the larger picture of what's going on in this text, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. My aim today, in the time that we have, is to give a sound and faithful exposition of verses 24 to 28 as I can, which will leave me no time for application today, which is one of the reasons I planned a long time ago that we would take at least two weeks on this. And so my plan is that you will come back, my hope is that you will come back. Because once we're done with the exposition and the big pictures before us, many questions are yet to be addressed. Practical questions, personal questions, and the wider social questions, as well as the wider biblical context, which I'm not going to touch on at all, which needs to be brought in. So we will take at at least one more week on this. At least... Now my prayer as we do this is that in both these weeks we will be a church and I will be a preacher in particular that will find a biblical balance between clear conviction about the sinfulness of homosexual behavior and patient compassion to come alongside those of you who have homosexual desires and alongside your family and your friends, and seek your good. We really have a beautiful statement on uh, conviction and compassion, our view of homosexual activity that the elders passed about six years ago, and I think that I'm going to make sure it gets into every one of your hands next Sunday as part of this service. I think you will find great help. It's being used all over the Baptist General Conference in our districts because it is such a good and balanced statement. I want us to be, and any of you who are um, excessively uh, filled with animosity towards homosexual people need to hear this very carefully, I want us to be a church like Corinth, at least a church like Paul wanted Corinth to be, when he wrote, listing fornicators, this is the list from 1 Corinthians six, ten: fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. And then he said... Such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So I want us to be a church of justified sinners who are coming alongside each other with all of our differing genetic hormonal environmental inclinations to our various sins. That's a very important sentence, which I'll address again next week. I'll say it again. I want us to be the kind of church that is filled with justified sinners who come alongside each other with our genetic, hormonal, environmental inclinations that cause everybody in this room to one sin or the other. It is folly to think there's no genetic basis for anger, impatience, rudeness, lying, theft, Do you think that sins emerge de novo, out of nowhere, on the spur of the moment? None of them does. They're all rooted in how we got to be the way we are. Either by virtue of our parents, or our hormones, or our genes. Everybody got to be the way you are, crummy as you are in this room By virtue of the interplay of those three things. Genes, hormones, and experiences of a zillion kinds. So that what pops out of your mouth sinfully or out of your life sinfully is owing to stuff in you and your background. So there's no sense here of getting all worked up about whether sins of any kind have roots in nature. They do. And the question is, so what? You do, you do genetic research on all the violent criminals, criminals in prison today, and you will find physical differences between them and the run of the mill culture. You will. So what do you do? Empty the prisons and turn everybody loose? No. We are responsible. I am wired. To sin certain ways. And I could tell them, but there's no point in wasting your time on things you already know, probably. My personality is spring-loaded to sin certain ways. No excuse, Piper. Well, that's all next week, so I'm I'm not supposed to be talking about that. All of that to say... I'm glad you let me be your pastor. And I don't want to run out anybody from this church who's wired to sin. I don't want to chase anybody away who struggles with the way you're wired or the way your parents did you in. I want us to get around each other and say, if it takes 10 or 20 years I'm going to stand with you in this battle, but make it a battle. Okay, now the third reason for why this interpretation is not valid, namely the interpretation that says really what Romans 1 is all about is heterosexuals who become promiscuous in homosexual acts or homosexuals who become promiscuous in heterosexual acts, and it's not talking about homosexuality per se as an unnatural Thing that Paul disapproves of. I think that's a wrong interpretation. And, and the third argument has to do with the entirety of the meaning of the text. And so I think the entire text has another viewpoint. And I want you to, to follow me as I show you that viewpoint. What I see in this text, and I hope you have your Bibles open now because I'm going to get very specific and walk you from verse 23 to 28, pointing out a pattern that develops. You've you've all seen it probably, but it'll help if I point it out again to make it crystal clear. Three times in this text, there is a sequence of thought with three steps in each sequence. Each of the three steps corresponds to each of the other three steps and sheds light on the other three steps in the sequence. Let me summarize first what the three steps are, and then I'll show you the three sets of sequences of those steps in this text. Here are the three steps. First, we have exchanged the glory of God... For the creature. That's step one. It's mentioned three times. Step number two. God hands us over to that which we prefer. That's mentioned three times. Third. We, therefore, having been handed over to that which we prefer, act out externally and bodily in our sexual relations a dramatization of what has happened internally and spiritually in the horrendous exchange of the glory of God for the creature. Those three steps, in that order, are mentioned three times you cannot miss the point and structure of this text once you have been drawn have your attention drawn to it so let's let's walk it and see it let's start in verse 23 first set of 3 verse 23 they exchange the glory of the incorruptible god for an image in the form of corruptible man that's step 1 step 2 verse 24 therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity. That's step two, the giving over. Now step three at the end of verse 24. So that, that's an awesome two words. God gave them over to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. So in response to the rejection of God's glory as our treasure, God wills that there be a disordering of bodily life in dishonorable deeds. That's awesome. See that? God hands them over. That is, He decrees that they be given up to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored. Let me paraphrase it this way. The sexual disordering of the human race is a judgment of God for exchanging him for a creature. And it's a disordering that affects every one of us in this room. This is Light and Truth. God-centered preaching to help you see Christ clearly and treasure Him truly. I'm your host, Dan Kruver. Thank you for listening. On our next episode, John Piper continues our series, Our Gospel Need, with a sermon titled, Sexual Disorder Begins With Worship. I hope you'll join us. For more resources, visit DesiringGod.org.